<clears throat> Good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing well.
something completely different now. time I think of you, Lord, things you said and done, give me life and peace and freedom, there's nothing better than to walk with you, all of my problems seem to disappear, I'm never taking of you for you give me courage and remove my fear I'm yours and thankful you are mine how my life has changed since the day you came in Save me now, every day's brand new. Life's become an awesome journey. There's nothing better than to walk with you. All of my problems seem to disappear. I'm never taking my eyes. Of you, for you give me courage and remove my fear. I'm yours and thankful you are mine. Whether I live or die, whether I'm rich or poor, whether in health or in pain, whether lonely or in a crowd. I'm yours and thankful you are mine The future don't scare me Because I know you're there waiting for me Soon I'm going home I cannot wait to be in your presence There's nothing better than to walk with you. All of my problems seem to disappear. I'm never taking my eyes off you. For you give me courage and remove the fear. I'm yours and thankful you are mine Whether I live or die Whether I'm rich or poor Whether in health or in pain Whether lonely or in a crowd I'm yours and thankful you are mine Okay, be right back. Let me hang up the guitar. I'll be right back with you.
All right, I'm back, Jack, and I got to put my phone on airplane mode because you don't. I don't want to have a phone call from my father or my mother, who has dementia. <laughs> she. It's funny at the at the nursing home. My mother's in this nervous home in Norwood, where I grew up, and it's not too far away from my father's house, so you can see her at any time. It worked out great. The Lord worked that out great, and uh, but uh, I, when I. When I was there, what she, when I was, you know, when I was there, what she, what she likes to do is she likes, she's like a little kid now. Cause it's kind of like what they refer to as a child. And, uh, she's like, you see kids when they get your phone. Well, my mother likes to fiddle with my father's phone. <laughs> so yeah, when I was, yeah, I go, he's like, can you fix my, 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 you know, stuff would be all screwed up because she was messing with it. And I don't know. I was like, how'd she mess that up? You know? And uh, so you put, she'd put it on, you know, air, uh, silent mode or whatever. So he couldn't hear the phone calls. Well, why? Well, check your thing. And then, you know, it's like. Maybe she just flipped it on airplane mode because she just, just like a kid does, a little kid, you know. So uh, she was always, so that'd be funny if she gives me a call, you know, as I'm ready to start teaching, and she gives me a buzz on the phone by accident. <laughs> of course, she didn't know who she was calling, of course. But uh, funny thing, my father, you know, you really don't know. Sometimes they come in and out, people with dementia, especially in her, she's in the late stages of it, final stages. But, you know, she... Uh, you just don't know if, how much they, they, you know, the context. They don't, you know, like, she knows, she probably, there's parts of her, like, she can remember my name at times, or, and she will, you know, like, I go, you know, I go, so you remember me? You know, because I had been, I had, when you're around her a lot, she can remember your name, like, or, or she'll, you know, so my father, his name's Billy, my name's Billy, but I'll go to her, and, you know, it's like, when I hadn't seen her in a while, and a couple of months, because I was here in Alabama, so I had to go, hey, you know who I am? She goes, she looks at me like, what do you think? Billy. <laughs> I'm like, you're like, okay. And then there's other times like, you know, who am I? And she won't know, you know. Um, but um, what she did the other day, my father was telling me, and uh, so it was their 62nd wedding anniversary on the 4th, February 4th. So I called them up in the afternoon where I know he's going to be at the nurse home in the afternoon to see her. My sister and her husband were there. My sister Linda and her husband were there. And uh, so she, uh, uh, so she, I put, I got on the phone with it. My father gives me the phone, gives her the phone to her. So I don't mind, happy anniversary, blah, 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 you know, and then, and then so when she goes to give it back to my father, she kisses the phone. <laughs> it was pretty funny. I was like, I don't know if she knew it was me or just, she, I know she does that from time. She does that from time to time, anyways. But, and, uh, but uh, it's funny. My mother, you know, it's like I say when I when I when I'm with her, I go say, hey, slap a kiss right here, and she'll give me a kiss <laughs> every single time. But uh, she's she. It's kind of funny. Some things she doesn't. Uh, she never really lost because my father and I, when we would tease her, even to even to this moment in this stage of the disease, she knows when we're messing around with her. She'll say, hey, you know, she'll. It's funny how she has never lost that. I don't know what that is. I can't, it's kind of funny, you know? And because uh, you, you can't, you know, she, she'll know when you're giving her a hard time. So anyways, I mean, you could say something about, like we would tease her about her weight, you know? Hey, Ma, you starting to pack it on? And she, get the heck out of here. <laughs> the funniest thing, one of the, you know, you, I mean, it's really hard. I mean, it's, it was really hard, you know, watching your mother deteriorate and everything. But there was some, funny things that, you know, along the way. There was not all, you know, tears. But uh, I remember um, one time, um, 
Well, it's each, we, oh yeah. So it was in the middle of the pandemic, right? And we couldn't get anybody to cut her hair, you know? And it was a real chore to, to get somebody to cut, you know, we wanted to have somebody come to the house and cut her hair. But it was in the middle of the pandemic. We didn't want to take her out anywhere. And uh, so we kind of let it go. I said, yeah, like I said to my father, I mean, she's 80, 80 years old now. I was like, I mean, what does she need? To, she always had her hair colored red all the way up to, right up to 2020, I think. So in the middle of the pandemic, we started letting it go gray a little bit. And then uh, they cut it. I remember it looked good, you know. And then uh, so I'm upstairs getting her changed for, di- uh, for, for for bed, you know. So we around after dinner, we'd give, I'd take her up and put her in a clothes, which was a trip in itself sometimes. And so I get her dressed in her pajamas and everything and, and bring her downstairs again, and with, you know, the bathroom on and everything, watch TV a little bit with my father. So, you know, she, I go, so I go, she goes, I, you know, put it in front of the mirror and I, I would brush her hair and she goes, what the heck happened to my hair? <laughs> Why is it gray? <laughs> like, you're just noticing that now, ma? So, I'll just never forget that. She goes, what the heck happened to my hair? <laughs> oh, there's some funny things. But my, I said, you're 80 years old. I mean, geez, do you really want to start keep coloring your hair? So then it's kind of funny. A girlfriend started letting their hair go that way. But uh, I don't know. I don't have that problem worry about going gray. I know some people like, uh, you know, like the color of their hair in there. Like, you know, like Paul McCartney. I think he gave up coloring his hair. He still does a little bit. But, uh. He was coloring his hair there all the way until his mid-70s. Like, come on, Paul. You're 80, 70 years, five years old. You're still good. Don't you? Being gray, it's okay. John would have let him sell his hair go gray <laughs> if he was alive. All right, enough of this. Let's, uh, let's take a moment of silent prayer. We're going to continue our study of our introduction to the Ephesian epistle. Today we'll be continue, uh, discussing more major themes that are in the Ephesian epistles, epistle. We noted in the last class the major purpose of the letter, which is to keep the unity of the church, which is a major theme, and uh, and also Christ. Jesus Christ is a major, you know, it's Christocentric epistle. It's all, it revolves around him. So we're going to talk about more major themes, though, that are in this particular letter, this great epistle. And, uh, and then we'll have on, on, uh, on uh, Thursday, we'll wrap up the introduction by noting two, uh, two major themes, two more major themes, which is grace and peace, which actually begin the letter in the, in the salutation. So we'll, uh, we'll, uh, let's take a moment of silent prayer. As is our custom, we take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves and determine if we're in fellowship with God because any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But according to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Father, He, God, the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. We maintain that fellowship by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us through the Scriptures which He's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit and Colossians 3.16 to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So if there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing and distracting, you do what 1 Peter 5.7 says, cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We thank you for those who are joining us live or through the recordings at a later date to our, on our various website, podcasts, and media platforms that you've given to us. We thank you for the technology you've given to us so that we can reach around the world. And we just uh, pray, Father, uh, today that the technology would function properly. There'd be no problems with the recordings, the video, and the audio, and upload these things to our various website, podcasts, and media platforms that you've given to us. I pray that you protect them from the evil one and use them mightily. I pray there'd be no problems with the streaming video by YouTube and thank you for their providing that service for us so that we can broadcast live throughout the world and thank you for those who've taken advantage of that. And I also uh, pray that today that by the power of the Spirit you'll help me to communicate your word today with these major themes in the Ephesian epistle with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power so that your people can receive the necessary spiritual nourishment and work mightily and powerfully through them. Help them to be sensitive to the Spirit's guidance and direction. Help them by the Spirit to understand and concentrate and apply what they're being taught. And please break down any barriers that sin and Satan might put up that would hinder that from happening. So Father, we pray for this uh, service in our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, your Son. In His name we pray. Amen. We're continuing, as I said before, the Ephesian epistle, the introduction to the Ephesian epistle. Quickly, by way of review, before we continue forward with this uh, introduction and just review what we've covered so far in this introduction, we noted the canonicity of the epistle. It was uh, recognized very right from the start as uh, inspired by God. Remember, with the doctrine of canonicity, which I just taught actually at Doctrinal Bible Church here, uh, a couple, uh, we just finished it off a couple weeks ago. But uh, inspiration determines canonization. In other words, no church council or pastor or uh, emperor like Constantine uh, determined what would go in the, in the Bible. Uh, it was actually the Holy Spirit inspired the book and the person who wrote it. Then that's what determined it got into the canon. All the church did was simply recognize the divine authorship, the divine nature of the book, uh, whether it was a book by Paul or John or, or uh, one of the prophets of Israel. And then we noted the uh, the 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 authorship was which is Pauline. Uh, we noted that uh, not until modern times, like in the 19th century and into our day and age, do you see um, people disputing the, the Pauline authorship of this letter. Uh, and even in today, evangelical service circles, a lot of people think Ephesians, like First, Second Timothy, and Titus, is a pseudonymous letter. And of course, we pointed out that the church rejected pseudonymity, as we pointed out, Paul in Second Thessalonians 2, a book we studied, uh, he, he mentions uh, he was concerned about, uh, there was a false doctrine that got into the Thessalonian Christian community that the day of the Lord had begun. And he said, even if somebody, one of the things he says, if, if somebody even sends a letter saying it's me, uh, or allegedly from us, me and Salvanus, that the day of the Lord has, has begun, it's it rejected. And then he's at the end of the letter, he gives his, he makes a point of noting his authenticating mark on the letter, which would prevent it from forgeries, prevent for, uh, forgeries and being deceived by pseudonymous letters. So in also the early church on baptism written by Tertullian, he noted that a pastor who revered Paul and was trying to spread the fame of Paul uh, posed as Paul and uh, the church uh, um, excommunicated him. So the church has never accepted pseudonymous letters. And uh, so uh, then we had the church from the very beginning also, uh, they're closest to the, the his, historically to, to the, the, the autograph, and they all recognize it as being Pauline, this letter. It was bundled with Paul's letters. It was uh, a Pauline book. It was right, no, there's no question, for, it wasn't for, you know, for almost 2,000 years, nobody questioned the Pauline authorship of this letter. And then we, uh, we talked about uh, we talked about the recipients of this letter, 
who were not just the Ephesian Christian community, but also the various Christian communities throughout the Roman province of Asia, like the seven churches of Asia that John wrote to uh, in Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, so like 1 John, a book we studied in detail, Ephesians is a circular letter, or encyclical letter we call it, which means it's not for one just, or just one Christian community, but many Christian communities. And this is indicated by the fact that there's no personal greetings in the letter. Uh, we would think that this would be the case because Paul spent three years with these individuals, the Ephesian Christian community, according to Acts 18, 19, and 20. However, there's none. And also the prepositional phrase at the very beginning of the letter, uh, in Ephesus, in the uh, in FSO, the Greek uh, prepositional phrase translated in Ephesus, it doesn't fe appear in the best and earliest manuscripts that we have, though it is in manuscripts and uh, other many manuscripts. And so, um, so that's another indication. This was a circular letter. Not uh, so. What would look and Martian seems to uh, would corroborate this. Uh, he noted that he saw that at this Ephesian letter, but it was entitled to the Laodiceans. In fact. Uh, many believe that the Paul's uh, mention of at the end of Colossians, the Laodicean letter, is the Ephesian epistle, and uh, so this all indicates that you know when it the, the, as the scenario that Dan Dr. Dan Wells came up with, which I, I agree with, uh, is that uh, it, Paul writes it from Rome and then he he uh, sends it to Ephesus and from there, which was his home base, uh, it was sent to Laodicea and then these various cities throughout the Roman province of Asia where there were Christian communities. And so there'd be a space instead of in Ephesus, they put to the Laodiceans or in Laodicea or uh, Pergamum or whatever the city was, they would leave a blank there. Uh, and so they would, somebody would fill in the blank with a different prepositional phrase, whatever the city was. And so then we noted the, uh, Paul wrote this book from Rome. Uh, some people say it was from Ephesus, Caesarea, uh, Caesarea, excuse me. And, uh, but the, uh, but the, the burden of proof is on those individuals who don't think it's a Roman imprisonment. It wasn't Rome that he wrote this uh, because he says he's imprisoned. He says this in the epistle, Ephesians 3.1, Ephesians 4.1. He's a prisoner of the Lord. So that's very important. So the burden of proof is on them, and there's not enough evidence to disprove the, uh, the, the, uh, Paul writing this from Rome during his first Roman imprisonment, which was uh, between 60 and 62 AD. It's uh, mentioned in Acts 28 where he had his own rented quarters, but he was chained to a Roman soldier. But he could receive people, as it says at the end of the book of Acts. So uh, so this is what we've been uh, noting so far in the, in the introduction. And we also noted the literary genre, what type of litera uh, literature is this that we're interpreting, which is very important. It is a an epistle, and it follows the uh, you know um, typical... Uh, Greco-Roman uh, pattern of letter writing, and uh, so Paul. This is a, a, a epistle that Paul wrote to the uh, not only the Ephesian Christian community, but also to various Christian communities throughout the Roman province of Asia, and uh, he wrote this from Rome. And then we uh, noted some. Um, we noted uh, begin to note some themes, major themes in the letter, as we pointed out in the last class, and the purpose, uh, which is tied to the, the first major theme. The first major theme is unity, and this is tied to the purpose because that's the purpose of the letter. Paul was concerned uh, about uh, the, um, if you look at the contents of the letter, as we pointed out, he, he, he wanted the, the, the unity to be maintained experientially in the Christian community, uh, in the Roman, various Christian communities throughout the Roman province of Asia, and with a little bit of emphasis on uh, the, Ephesia, uh, the Jewish Christian community, as he mentions the relationship between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in Ephesians 2, 11 to the end of that chapter. 
So this would all seem to, and, and, and he wants this to be maintained through the practice of love. And, and, it, and obeying the command to love one another manifests itself in different ways, and humility toward one another, gentleness, patience, for, uh, patience forgiveness, forgiveness toward one another, and compassion toward one another. Uh, that would manifest the fact that you're obeying the command to love one another. So he wanted that um, unity to be ex uh, maintained experientially. You could also argue for that in the book of Philippians. Because the Iodia and Syntyche were having a little uh, problem, a couple of mature women believers who helped Paul, as we saw in Philippians 4. And in the first chapters, he especially to the end of that first chapter, he talks about them being of one mind, one spirit. And so, so that's a concern. I think he always has that concern in a lot of, a lot of, a lot of uh, epistles that he has. It may not be as out front as, as the case with like Philippians or Ephesians. And uh, so today we're going to note some more major themes in the Ephesian epistle and then two final ones uh, in, um, on Thursday, which, will, which are actually found, uh, for the, the first found in, the, in, in verse 2 of Ephesians chapter 1. So we're going to note some major, more major themes in this Ephesian epistle before we go verse by verse study in detail of this book. So, uh, if you, uh, so first of all, let's, the first thing we're going to look at today is truth. Truth is another major theme in this epistle. Uh, and how do we know this? Well, it's indicated by the fact that the word for truth here, aletheia, appears seven times in this epistle. Ephesians 1, 13, Ephesians 4, 15, 21, 24, 25, 5, 9, and 6, 14. In fact, Paul uses, in Ephesians 1, 13, Paul uses the word aletheia, truth, and defines it as the gospel of your salvation. Let's look at, uh, I'll read for the NIV today. Look at Ephesians 1.1 1, 1 in, in the NIV. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 1. I just had to put my monitor back on. All right, so it says in Ephesians 1, 1, Paul, and I'm reading from the NIV again, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, excuse me, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth and under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having pre been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity to the, with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of Aletheia, truth, the gospel of your salvation, he calls this message of truth. When you believed, you were marked with him, in him, with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So notice uh, they, he's talking about the Ephesians justification where they were justified through faith in the gospel, the message of truth, he calls it. And so we see this. Uh, so this is the first major. Th- uh, this is one of the, the first major theme that we'll note this uh, this morning. So the truth is one of those major themes in this letter because this word for truth, aletheia, is found as I said before in Ephesians one thirteen. It's also found in Ephesians four fifteen. 21, 24, 25, 5, 9, and 6, 14. It appears again in Ephesians 4, 15, where Paul commands the recipients of the letter to practice the truth when interacting with each other by means of obeying the command to love one another. He asserts that truth is in Jesus in Ephesians 4, 21, and then states that righteousness and holiness comes from the truth. Paul also teaches in Ephesians 4, 25, that the recipients were to speak the truth with each other because they are members of one another. And then in Ephesians 5, 9, he teaches that the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And lastly, the apostle in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 employs a military metaphor when addressing the recipients of the letter which speaks of the full armor of God. And one of those items which form the Christian soldier's armor is that of the belt of truth. And that's in Ephesians 6, 14. So let's go over to Ephesians chapter 4. And let's look at, uh, we'll start at um, verse 11, Ephesians 4, 11. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And it says, it, it was he, in context Jesus Christ, who gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, that is to build up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, a mature person attaining to the measure of Christ's full stature. So we're no longer to be children tossed back and forth by waves and carried about by every wind of teaching by the trickery of people who craftily carry out their deceitful schemes. Then he says in verse 15, excuse me, but practicing the truth in love, by means of love, we will in all things grow up into Christ who is the head, from whom the whole body grows and fitted and held together through every supporting ligament, the pa- function of the pastor's gift, the teach- gift of teaching. As each one does its part, the body grows in love. So I say this and insist in the Lord that you no longer live as the Gentiles do, the unregenerate Gentiles, and the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. Because they're callous, they have given themselves over to indecency, for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn about Christ like this. If indeed you heard about him and were taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. Jesus said in the gospel, gospel of John, uh, I am the truth, the way and the life. Then he says in verse 22, so there's truth again, the third time in this letter. And uh, it says in verse 22, you were taught with reference to your former way of life to lay aside the old man who's being corrupted in accordance with deceitful schemes to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new man who has been created in God's image and righteousness and holiness that comes from the what? The truth, aletheia. And so, and then he goes on to say in verse 25, therefore having laid aside all falsehood, each of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another. So notice again, speaking the truth, aletheia. So this particular um theme of truth is found throughout the Ephesian epistle. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. 
And let's look at verse uh, Ephesians chapter 5, and let's look at uh, verse 1. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No moral, excuse me, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them, for you were once darkness, but now you are a light in the Lord, live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and aletheia, truth, and find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Go up to Ephesians chapter 6. It'll be all over the uh, this book today. Look at Ephesians 6.10. Paul writes, Finally be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand, Stand firm then with the belt of truth, Aletheia, buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Now, uh, another major theme that's found in Paul's epistles, uh, the the Ephesian epistle, is reconciliation. Uh, Because in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, Paul speaks of the reconciliation of Jews with Gentiles through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, Look at Ephesians 2.11 now. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, Again, I'm I'm reading from the NIV. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles, uh, non-Jews, by birth, and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time, before they became Christians. You were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he, they were far away because they didn't have a covenant relationship with God like the nation of Israel did, the Israelites did. And so, uh, and then it says in verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who's made the two groups, Jew and Gentile races, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh, his human nature, the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, right? Translation, out of the two races, thus making peace between the two races and in one body to reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile, to God. So there's a reconciliation of the human race with God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near the Jew. For through him, we both have access, both Jew and Gentile believers, have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. So that's a major theme. Reconciliation is a major theme 
in this letter simply because of that big passage there, as we'll see. Uh, very important because that's tied to the purpose of the letter because he, he wanted the Gentile uh, Christian community to uh, live in peace with the Jewish Christian community. And uh, because it'd be culture shock for uh, J Jews, Jewish believers to come into the contact with Gentiles because prior to their conversion, Jew and Gentiles wouldn't even, uh, Jew would never even go to a Gentile's home. Read Acts 10. P Peter had to be given a vision three times before he went into Cornelius, Cornelius a Roman centurion Gentile in his home. <laughs> now, another major theme, let's keep going because I have a, many to show you. Another major theme, which is found in the Ephesians epistle, is that of the church. That's right, the church. And that's indicated by the fact that the term for church in the Greek New Testament, ecclesia, appears in Ephesians 1.22, 3.10, 21, 5.23, 24, 25, 29, and 32. So the church is also referred to with the body metaphor. And Ephesians 1, 23, 2, 16, 4, 4, 12, 16, 5, 23, and 5, 30. So that's, uh, the church is a major theme in this letter because of the appearance of the body metaphor and those uh, places I just mentioned. And also the word for church, ecclesia, is found in, again, in Ephesians 1, 22, 3, 10, 21, 5, 23, 24, 25, 29, and 32. It's all over the place. Now, the gospel is another major theme found in Ephesians, as evidenced by the fact that the term euangelion, the gospel, appears four times in this letter. Namely, as we read in Ephesians 1, 13, 3, 6, 6, 15, as we read, and 6, 19. Also, another major theme that appears in Ephesians is that of the Christians, union with Christ and position in Christ, which means that the Christian is identified with Christ in his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session, at the right hand of the Father. And this is indicated by Paul's use of the prepositional phrase, en Christo Iesu, which means in Christ Jesus, which appears seven times in the Ephesian epistle. Ephesians 1, 1, 2, 6, 7, 10, 13, 3, 6, and 2, 21, and five times with reference to the believer's union and identification with Christ in Ephesians 1, 1, 2, 6, 7, 10, and 13. So that prepositional phrase is around quite a bit. And uh, so then also this, as we as we'll point out, this union identification with Christ is also alluded to with the prepositional phrase en Christo, in Christ, which occurs in Ephesians 1.3. So this is a very, very important to Paul's teaching. We're in union with Christ. The moment of your justification, uh, when you were clearly justified by the Father simultaneously, the Holy Spirit placed you in union with Christ. You once were in Adam, the first Adam, under a curse. Now you're in Christ uh, it, uh, in a place of blessing. That's why you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus and also material blessings, by the way. Remember the millennial reign and the new heavens and new earth. Um, so, and also uh, we see that at that moment, the Holy Spirit identified us through the baptism of the Spirit and our justification. Um, he identified us with Christ in his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session of the right hand of the Father. Big chapters on this union identification with Christ and his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session of the right hand of the Father, Ephesians, uh, Romans 6, and we pointed out in the last class, Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, especially chapter 1, uh, Colossians 3, and actually 2 as well, a good portion of chapter 2, a book we studied in the past. So uh, God looks at us as crucified, died, buried, raised, and seed with Christ. Why? Because we're in union with him. He looks at us, he looks the human race into two people, either under the first Adam, or, which is under his wrath, or under Christ, which is under his blessing. That's why Paul uses this metaphor. This, in Romans 5, 12 through the end of that chapter, 
okay, sets that whole position in Christ doctrine uh, and identification with Christ up. That's why it's very important to understand Romans 5, 12 through the end of that chapter. It's one of the most important sect paragraphs in the Bible as far as understanding your relationship to Jesus Christ as a church-age believer. Now, so as we continue forward, another theme, another major theme which appears in Ephesians is the, the believer's sanctification, which is tied to the believer's union identification with Christ. So this uh, sanctification is alluded to in Ephesians 1.1 with the word saints, uh, verse 15, 18, 2, 19, 3, 8, 18, 4, 12, 5, 3, and 6, 18. And it's indicated, alluded to by the adjective for the word uh, translated the saints, hagios. This doctrine is also being referred to by the verb hagiazo, which appears in this epistle, which means to sanctify. So these two words describe the church age believer from the perspective that they've been sanctified, which means to be set apart. And this was accomplished through the baptism of the Spirit at the moment of their justification, their conversion, in order to serve God exclusively. And so uh, I say it's tied to union identification with Christ because at the moment of your justification, the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, identified you with Christ, okay, in His crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session the right hand of the Father. That sets up, that's the positional aspect of your sanctification. The, exper- uh, the perfective aspect is when you're perfected in a resurrection body. The, the second stage is the experiential. Experiencing your sanctification is experiencing being set apart to serve God exclusively, and you experience that sanctification through obedience to God's word. So uh, positional sanctification, in fact, positional salva- aspect of your salvation, which we're going to note in a minute, are all stemming from the baptism of the Spirit, which placed you in union with Christ. So like sa- sanctification, salvation is in three stages. Positional, which took place at your justification, and experiential, which takes after takes place after your justification through fellowship with God. Perfective takes place when you're in a resurrection body at the rapture of the church, which is imminent. Resurrection, rapture of the church. And so positional means the absence of your justification. That means that this is how God looks at you. This is what he's done for you. And this positional aspect of your sanctification and salvation sets up the guarantee of being having your salvation and sanctific- sanctification perfected in a resurrection body. It also sets up the uh, potential to experience the sanctification and salvation through obedience to God's word. I say it's a potential because you have to make a volitional decision to have faith and obedience in God's word. So this leads us to salvation. Salvation is also another theme in this Ephesian epistle. It's alluded to in Ephesians 2.8 with the verb sozo, have been saved, and by the noun soteria, which we saw, salvation, which is we saw in Ephesians 1.13 and 6.17. So these two words speak of the believer's deliverance from their personal sins, enslavement to the sin nature, Satan, his cosmic system, condemnation from the law, spiritual and physical death, and of course, eternal condemnation. And specifically, it speaks of all three stages of the Christian salvation. Go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Famous passage, of course. Ephesians 2, 1. I'll go read it in the NIV still. I'm reading from the NIV still. So it says in verse 1, Ephesians 2, 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, describing them, the Gentile Christian community uh, as uh, before their justification, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, Satan and the unbelievers. 
All of us also lived among them at one time, prior to our justification, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, the old sin nature, and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Okay? So there it is, the word saved. And raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. See, that's your identification with Christ and his resurrection and session at the right hand of the Father. And why do you do this? So that in the order, in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, express this, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus, for it is by grace you have been saved. Paraphrastic, perfect uh, there, paraphrastic, uh, uh, paraphrastic uh, construction, which is, we'll talk about that in great detail with the verb sozo, and then you have, uh, what else do you have that? Where's the Greek text there? Here. I'll just look at it here. I forget what the word was. Um, yeah, see, it's amy. It's in the present active indicative uh, conjugation. Then we have sozo, which is in the perfect passive participle conjugation. It's a paraphrastic participle, which basically is, I mentioned this because it just talks about the fact that um, you're saved in the past and the results, and you're, it's a, uh, you're saved in the past um, and results go, continue on forever. He's being emphatic there that you have eternal security. You have been saved and you continue to be saved and will be saved forever. So we'll talk about that when we get there. Now, let's continue on. Another, another uh, theme in this epistle is the personal work of the Holy Spirit, like the personal work of Christ and our union identification with Christ being a major themes. We see the personal work of the Holy Spirit is noted quite a bit uh, by the Apostle Paul in the Ephesian letter, because as we saw in Ephesians 1.13, uh, he is mentioned there. He's mentioned in Ephesians 1.17, 2.18, as we read, 22, as we also read, Ephesians 3.16, 4.3, Ephesians 5.18, 6.17, as we read, and 18, as we read uh, earlier. Thus, the person and work of the Holy Spirit is yet another great theme which appears in the Ephesian epistle. Another one of the major themes of the Ephesian epistle is that of spiritual warfare. And that's mentioned in great detail in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 19. And so the church age believer has three great enemies, according to the scriptures. Number one, we get the devil, uh, 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9, Ephesians 6, 12, John 16, 11, Colossians 2, 15 for documentation. You can also note um, 1 John 2, 13, 14. The second great enemy of the church is the cosmic system of Satan, uh, the world, a system and arrangement of the affairs of the human of human and uh, uh, government under the control of the devil and opposed to God and his purposes for the human race. John 16, 33, 1 John 5, 4, and two, Ephesians 2, 2 talk about this as we read a little bit a while ago. And also first, more in, partic uh, in particular, uh, 1 John 2, um, uh, Chapter 15, verses 15 through 17. Chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And then lastly, the third great enemy that the believer has is, uh, um, is uh, indwelling. It's the old Adamic sin nature and all its corrupting power and life-dominating patterns. That's uh, Romans 7, 15, 8, 4 through 8, 13, Galatians 5, 16 through 26 for documentation. And lastly, uh, the Trinity is a major theme that appears in the Ephesian epistle. The word Trinity does not appear in Scripture. However, 
uh, like the term rapture, the word is used by theologians to describe what the scriptures reveal about who and what God is. Namely, it describes God as being three co-equal, co-infant, co-paternal persons with each sharing the same divine essence. So, like the rapture, which is a term that doesn't appear in scripture, either does the Trinity. But we know from a comparison of scripture with scripture, the Trinity is taught by the the, uh, the Holy Spirit in the, in the, in the uh, canon of scripture. And we know the rapture is tr- is something that's taught. So though, now it's interesting with the term rapture, um, the term rapture is actually taken from the, you know, in First Thessalonians 4.17, snatched there, it's harparzo. In the Latin Vulgate, the word rapio, from which we get our, it's a transliteration from which we get the term rapture, okay? Uh, uh, that word rapio is used by um, in the in the Latin Vulgate used by Jerome to translate harparzo in First uh, Thessalonians four seventeen, which talks about believers being snatched from the earth, uh, which is imminent at the uh, when the when the church gets its resurrection body. So the term uh, so the, the the Trinity there's many triadic patterns throughout the Ephesian epistle, as we'll see uh, in this study of Ephesians. So it's a very Christocentric book, as we pointed out in the last class and at the beginning of today's class, but it's also uh, has a lot of Trinitarian triadic patterns uh, in, throughout this letter. It's, it's an amazing letter, it really is. And so uh, we see that the word Trinity, it means that in the one God, in the being of God, there are three persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the being of God, there's three persons. There is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so there's one God, and in God, there are three persons. They describe themselves in Scripture as Father, Son, and Spirit, each of whom is identified in Scripture as God. The Father, Son, and Spirit are identical in being, the doctrine of the Trinity contends. No one person in the Trinity is higher or lesser status than the other. And uh, so when it says that Christ or the Holy Spirit subordinates themselves to the Father, the big passage in that is in the Gospels, but also you see it in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, that doesn't mean subordination that, uh, that means they're less than God. And this is something that uh, even egalitarians are trying to mess up the doctrine of the Trinity because they don't like to be women to be subordinate to, to men in any instance. And uh, so, of course, just because they, they bought the lie, that's why they don't like this doctrine of wives submitting to their husbands and all things is under the Lord because they think subordination means you're less than a person. Now, is Jesus Christ less than God and the Holy Spirit less than God because they subordinate themselves to the Father's will? Of course not. So why do we have this subordination in marriage and in in the Trinity? That's how, first of all, the Trinity, that's how they function. Okay, they've always functioned that way. Uh, There's never been a time that they haven't functioned that way. That's how they function. Marriage, that's how they want marriage to function. They design marriage and this is how they, the best way to marriage to be run. Whether you like it or not, yeah, that's the way it is. I, I didn't create this, you know. And so you can reject that, but the scriptures teach that. So just because you are uh, have to subordinate yourself to somebody, that doesn't mean you're less than, you know, your husband. I mean, you're, you're a child of God, creating the image of God. In fact, he says in First Peter chapter 3, and Paul says treat, husbands are supposed to treat their wives like their own flesh. And you'll love them as Christ loved you, the church, you know, so, so it's the, the, the woman is, the woman is not her, um, her, um, worth or the, her, you know, is not in any way, you know, uh, 
attacked or uh, diminished in any way. She's just as, she's worth, worth much to God, just like the man. In fact, the first witnesses to the resurrection were women, you know, which is kind of interesting because in the early first century, uh, in Jewish culture and Roman culture, a woman's testimony was not admissible in court. And his, his, if you're going to start a res, if you're going to start a religion, the last thing you want to do is have women to be their witnesses in the first century. I'm not saying to demean women. That's the fact. Look it up. And so, so that tells you, you know, the last thing in the, the church, the disciples of Jesus didn't create this religion, because last thing they would do is have, you know, Mary Magdalene and the other women being witnesses to Jesus being raised from the dead before the men. You wouldn't do that. You know, on and on it goes. The, the lies that Satan's cosmic system used against Christianity, and and it's just amazing. They're, they're brilliant, that's for sure. Look at Ephesians 2, 18. It says, For through him, Christ, we have both our access in one spirit to the Father. There's a Trinitarian verse right there. In this verse, uh, Paul instructs the Ephesians that through Jesus Christ, they have access by means of the Spirit to the Father. And, if, and it says in Ephesians 4, 4 and 4, 5 and 6, uh, there is one body, one spirit, just as also you were called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, that's Jesus. Notice he already said the Spirit. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and, and through all and in all. There it is. And Paul is exhorting there in that, ver in that passage, the Ephesians, to unity by reminding them that there's one Spirit, one Lord, and Father. In other words, God is a unity of three persons, and so as members of their family, they should be united through obedience. Ephesians 5, 18 through 20 says in the New American Standard, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking with, to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Another triadic pattern is found there, because Paul as you can see, commands the Ephesians in this passage to be totally and completely influenced by the Spirit. That's what being filled with the Spirit means. They do this by being influenced by means of the Spirit, which will result in them speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in their hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. Also, Ephesians 1, 3 through, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, the, the great preface, the doxology of Paul's in this letter, which opens the letter, uh, it presents the work of all three members of the Trinity on behalf of the church-age believer. As we read earlier, and I pointed this out before, these verses constitute the preface of the letter. Paul begins by asserting that along with the Father, the Lord, is Jesus Christ, is worthy of praise and glorification. Ephesians 1.3 The apostle then states that the Father chose the Christian community in, in, in Christ before the foundation of the world because of their union identification with Christ, which took place at the moment of their justification, as we pointed out through the baptism of the Spirit. Then verse 5, Paul teaches that the Father predestinated the church-age believer for adoption as his sons through their union identification with Christ. And then in verse 6, he asserts that they received the Father's grace through his Son, Jesus Christ. Not only this, but in verse 7, Paul asserts that they have received redemption through the blood or death of Jesus, namely the forgiveness of their trespasses. And then in verses 9 and 10, Paul asserts that the Father did this when he revealed to the church the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, that he set forth through the person of Christ. And Paul teaches in this passage that all things will be summed up in Christ, the millennial reign, namely the things in heaven and the things on earth. And then in verse 11, the Christian has been claimed as the Father's own possession because of their union identification with Jesus Christ because they were predestined according to the Father's purpose, Ephesians 1.11. And in verse 13, 
it says that they were marked with the seal of the Holy, promised Holy Spirit because they trusted in Jesus Christ at their justification. So if you look at, we'll close with this. If you look at Ephesians 1.3, it's kind of, you see the phrase, to the praise of His glory. I pointed this out, I think, in the last class. You see this phrase? Prepositional phrase in verse 6. To the praise of His glorious grace. And then in verse 12, it says, for the praise of His glory. Then it says at the end of verse 14, to the praise of His glory. Now listen to me. And verses 3 through 5, he's talking about the Father's work on behalf of the church age believer in eternity past. And he says this is to the praise of His glorious grace. Verses 7 through 12, he's talking about the work of Jesus Christ. And this was to the praise of the Father's glory. And then verses 13 and 14, he's talking about the work of the Spirit at justification. And that was the Father's praise of His glory as well. So there's a tri tri triadic pattern, we call it, in a th the very opening of the letter. So we have quite a many, uh, many themes here. As I pointed out, we have the gospel, we have truth, we have the work, personal work of the Holy Spirit, the personal work of Jesus Christ, and our union identification with Him. When I say the gospel, I already think I think I already said that. Um, and so uh, we have all these themes, and, and as we'll see on Thursday, there's also grace and peace. And also we have reconciliation. Unity is a major um, issue in this letter, major theme in this letter, as I pointed out in the previous class. But on Thursday, we'll be noting that grace and peace also is a major theme throughout this letter. So we're doing this to just to get a good idea of what this epistle is all about. We already know what the purpose is, uh, that Paul wants the unity of the Christian community to be maintained through the practice of the command to love one another. And so we'll uh, pick this up on Thursday. Thank you for joining me. And uh, we'll continue our study. We'll, we'll actually uh, finish off the, the introduction to this Ephesian epistle. And then on Saturday, uh, Lord willing, we'll be uh, beginning our verse-by-verse -verse study of this epistle. And it's going to be a lot of fun, a lot of great things in this letter. I'm, I Actually, when I finish this class and upload the, the recordings to our various websites and podcasts, I'll uh, be resuming my work on Ephesians 1.18, which is syntactically... Um, a, a son of a gun of a bastard. <laughs> well, I mean, it's great Greek. I'm on Paul's part, but man, it's 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 a, a difficult one, and I think I I think I got it. And uh, boy, I tell you, it's a lot of a lot of details in this thing. But I love that stuff. I love trying to fit, fit, you know wrestling with the text, and uh, so it's a great book. I I knew it'd be fun to to work on, and uh, so I finally get to do it. I wanted to do it in detail for a long time, so. Well, let's pick this up uh, Pick this up on Thursday at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. Let's close in prayer. Thank you again for joining me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that this lesson be a blessing to your people, bringing glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.